2020 started out strong. We were planning for the biggest year yet at Church at the Mill. We came into 2020 with a clear vision for where Church at the Mill was headed. Pastor DJ cast a vision for a multi-site model where each campus would have their own teaching pastor. He shared a vision for a new state-of-the-art student center, which would give every age group in our church an area that directly ministers to them all under one roof. He also cast a vision to retire our debt for our new facilities as quickly as possible. We had events that were a blast, literally, like the mother-son Nerf War and the daddy-daughter dance. These events had such a powerful impact on both kids and parents alike. We were gearing up for what looked to be the largest Easter at Church at the Mill. We were planning on where to park cars and how many services were needed to accommodate everyone. Jason and our missions team created an incredible missions conference that included an intimate night of worship, breakout sessions, food trucks, and incredible sessions led by guest speakers. We were in the process of assimilating the largest Serve the Berg project we have ever experienced. The student ministry spent weeks planning and preparing for the student spring retreat, D-NOW 2020. The theme for the weekend, FOMO, fear of missing out. Little did we know just how much FOMO we were about to experience. On March 12th, Church at the Mill made the difficult decision to cancel all in-person gatherings for the unforeseeable future. D-NOW, canceled. Midweek, canceled. Small groups, creative praise, Sunday night programming, ELC, consignment sale, Sunday morning in-person services, all canceled. It seemed our backs were against the wall, but there's one thing that could not be canceled, the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the commitment of the staff and members of Church at the Mill, for we did not stop. As a Mr. T fan growing up, I had aspirations of having a mohawk, but common sense took over. <laughs> so I don't have one, but Pastor Nate's going to have one, and we're going to take it all the way down. Formerly, Pastor Nate after tonight. <laughs> What's up, everybody? It's midweek live. This is like the sixth week of the quarantine and we're still rocking and rolling. Chris, the high school pastor. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> he messed up his own day.
I want to give credit to our tech team that pulled all that together. Aren't they an incredible blessing? It is not our normal practice to show a video of that link, but when I saw that, I felt like every one of you needed to see that snapshot of where we've been and where we're going. Whether you've come through the doors for the very first time, you're watching with us online for the first time, or you live through much of that, God has been so good to our church. And we are grateful for that in the midst of a time that we are still experiencing. I stand before you today, my heart is filled with joy and heaviness. I have families on my mind who are being affected by COVID. I have families on my mind whose funeral I participated in this week. I have families on my mind who have funerals to plan in the next few days and weeks. I have families on my mind who have people that they're disconnected with physically because they can't get to the hospital. They can't be allowed in the room. And those people are present in my heart. And I know without a shadow of a doubt, if they were here, they would say to us, we can be both. We can be heavy hearted and filled with joy at the same time. I hope you understand that duplicity of the Christian life that we recognize we can weep with those who are weeping and we can smile with those who are smiling because our lives are rooted on something that is far bigger than anything we've seen play out in front of our eyes this week or, quite frankly, for the last year. I want you to take your copy of God's Word and I want you to find the book of Acts. It's the fifth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts. You may have wondered why a word like Acts. Originally, it was the Acts of the Apostles. Some have said the Acts of the Holy Spirit. It is a moving, breathing document. And the reason we're going to spend this week and the rest of the month in the book of Acts is because of what we began last week. Remember that I told you last week as we began our new sermon series called 2021, a vision series for this month, that everybody knows healthy things move, living things move. Sometimes people move for all sorts of reasons. There are folks that are fleeing something in their life. They want to get away from last year or a difficult memory or a mistake they made. Other times we're chasing something. If I can just get this, I'll be happy. Unfortunately, there are times when we're searching. We don't know what our direction or our purpose is. And admittedly, we've all been in those scenarios. But sometimes, sometimes we're sent. And that's exactly what we as a people are. We're not chasing. We're not fleeing. We're not searching. We are a people who are supposed to live on the mission of our king, who sent us just as the Father sent him. In fact, the whole point of 2021, the sermon series, is to grab that mission and apply it to our lives. That's why I've asked each of you to join me in memorizing a verse for the entire year. And appropriately so, the verse is John 20, 21. John 20, 21 is when Jesus has resurrected. It is evening of the very first Sunday post the crucifixion. Jesus has already appeared to several of the disciples individually and several of the people in his life, but now he appears in the upper room that evening, that Sunday evening of the resurrection. And it is in that moment that Jesus sends his followers. 
And it is that moment that I want to capture, to summarize, to really be magnified in our hearts this year. Remember I challenged you last week if you were here with us online or in person that for many of us we felt like 2020 happened to us. And I believe based on what God's teaching us through this word, let's go happen to 2021. Let's be on mission. So I want you to say our verse with me out loud. We've installed special software. I want you to say it with me out loud online. We will hear you. We have microphones and cameras in your home. But John 20, 21, some of you are Googling that right now. We, we do not. We do not. John 20, 21. Let's read it and say it together, beginning with the word Jesus. Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. We talked about last week how he comforted them by saying, peace be to you. Not the world's peace, but my peace. And, and then he compared the commission that they're receiving with the commission that he himself received. I'm not sending you with half the power. I'm not sending you with half the truth. I'm not sending you with some of my presence. As the Father sent me and indwelt me and worked through me and used me, I am going to indwell you and send you. And sending us is not just to go live our lives and to chase our dreams and to hopefully make heaven by the skin of our teeth. No, sending us means that just like the Father sent the Son to be the Savior, the Son sends us to tell the world, there is a Savior, and to tell the world who he is. Now, right after the book of John, we get the book of Acts. Now, the book of Acts is far too long in its depth and breadth for us to deal with in one month. But throughout the book of Acts, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, gives us these summary statements. These summary statements of how the church is doing. And what you'll find if you read the book of Acts in its entirety the church got it wrong sometimes, and the church got it right. There's only one perfect character in the Bible, only one perfect person ever mentioned. And that's a great source of encouragement because it means that God does and plans to use flawed people, people who've made mistakes, people who sin, people who struggle. But the book of Acts is the church in its purest form. And often when things are just beginning, that's when they're most pure. That's when we want to go back to I mean, think about it. What are the cutest pictures of you? They're not your now pictures. They're your baby pictures. When you were first starting out. When do people take the most pictures of us? Do you know it's been years since my mother's done a photo album of me? Years. She tapered that off. My brother didn't even get a photo album. And now, because of social media, none of my children have a photo album. We can click and look and search but people slowly stop taking pictures of us as we get older. Now, for some of you, you just took that responsibility over and you love to take pictures of yourself. That's another sermon series. <laughs> but we are most beautiful when we first get started. Churches seem to be most focused right when they begin their ministry. In fact, when you study church life, most churches are plateaued or declining by their 50th birthday. Statistically, over, uh, over denominations, outside of parameters that we tend to create, churches in general do not grow much after their 50th birthday. And their prime years of growth 
are between years about 5 and about 35. And the churches that overcome that continually to stay focused on what they started out to do, which is to reach people. Organizations have to constantly re-remind themselves, recalibrate, refocus. If you run a small business, there are times when you have to call a staff meeting and pull your folks in and say, listen, let's remember what we're supposed to do and let's do that well because doing that well is what got us here. Every coach you've ever heard interviewed after a loss will tell you that there's always strategy, and there may be a few calls that didn't go your way, but it goes back down to the fundamentals. Which team blocked and tackled the best? Which team executed their game plan? It goes right back down to the very basics of what that team is designed to do. If you go out on a little league football field or you go watch an NFL game, every practice starts the same. All the players stretch, all the players practice their particular skills, all the players run through their plays. And they will always do that because in athletics, whether it be at the lowest recreational level or the highest professional level with the most incredibly gifted athletes, fundamentals matter. Now, the church is born in the book of Acts. You say, Pastor, how was the church non-existent before Jesus? Because the church is a group of people indwelt by Christ. Christ indwells his people through the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit cannot live in people until their sins are forgiven. Sins cannot be forgiven until Christ dies. Sins cannot be overcome and the delivery of the Spirit into people's lives until Christ's final victory over sin, which is the resurrection. So while God had a covenant people, Israel, before Jesus, the church could not exist until the work of the cross was done and the tomb was empty. But after the resurrection, Jesus tells them, I'm going to ascend and you want me to go. Because once I leave, I will send the Holy Spirit to indwell you. And in fact, when you open up the book of Acts and you begin to read chapter 1 and chapter 2 is the falling of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church. So this is literally week one of the church. Week one of people who are sent. And what we're going to see this morning in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, a popular description of the church is that they were sent together. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. I want to read that aloud. Read along with me silently as I read. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved, sent 
together. You know what you won't find in this entire paragraph? A personal pronoun. Me, I, you, if I'm referring to an individual, you. Those are personal pronouns. You know, pronouns, a word takes place of a noun. A personal pronoun is a pronoun that's addressed to an individual. It's not in here. That matters. In fact, when the early church is described, it's they, they, all, they. And it really zeroes in on something that we have watched unfold with an amount of visceral toxicity like I've never seen in my life. Togetherness. Our nation is not together this morning. We're not together. I I don't have an optimistic view of our future because we have become so disconnected from the values of the God that I believe helped founded this nation that we no longer share values in common. And as our society drifts further and further and further away from the truth of God's word, it doesn't make me angry or bitter or resentful toward my neighbors who are far from God. It reminds me all the more that I need to be sent and sharing my life on mission. But it also reminds me there's a togetherness this world is groping and grasping for. It will not find. It does not exist. There is no America utopia that will develop if the right person is elected or not elected. It cannot exist. But what can exist is a group of people so joined together spiritually, they stop using I and me and you individually and they began to be described with words like they and us and we. And if you've ever had the privilege of being around believers where you really didn't know where you ended and they began, your lives were so tightly woven together, you recognize there is an experience of confidence, consciousness, joy, happiness, security that cannot be found anywhere else. And and I would argue, this may be the greatest time in the history of the American church to show a world deeply divided what true community looks like. Community that supersedes race, ethnicity, culture, sociodemographic background. Community that supersedes the size of your bank account or the lack thereof. Community that supersedes your background, where you're from, what side of the tracks you were raised on. Community that is so deeply invested into the identity of our Savior that the best way people can describe us is, man, they're just together. They're just together. In fact, this is one of the reasons when you think about the vision of Church at the Mill, when we survey and look and harvest words from the New Testament, we harvest four to really capture what we want to be doing. We exist to gather, grow, give, and go. And there's a reason that the first word is gather. If you'll allow me to play on words, to gather means we must be together. And to be together means that we aren't just together being. 
It means we're moving together. You're not a parent if you hadn't sent people off together. Hey, y'all two go to the bathroom. Be back here in two minutes. Go together. Stay with your sister. Stay with your brother. You stay with both of them. I don't trust either one of them. You come over here and stay with them, right? You ever chaperoned a field trip with a bunch of kids? You know, everybody's got a buddy, buddy check, pair up, stay together. You, all of you, you're with his mom, you're with her dad. You stay together. Every person who's ever hiked the backcountry tells you that your chances of being safe go way up when you go with someone. And don't ever, no matter how desperate things may be, unless there is an imminent loss of life, don't ever split up. Stay together. You make better decisions together when you're dehydrated. You make better decisions together when you're stressed by being lost and you're disoriented. Stay together. Every preacher stood at an altar with a young man and a young woman who love each other and said, look, stay together. Stay together. One of the most precious parts of my uh, wedding memory is a song that Stephen Curtis Chapman had recorded that simply says, I will be here. I had that printed inside of Laurel's wedding band. I'm going to be here. I think sometimes she's tried to rub it off. Like, really? Go somewhere else. Maybe somebody else can handle your intensity, how fast you live life. But I'm, oh, I'm here. So I don't bring a lot of intelligence. There's not a lot of money. There certainly aren't good looks, but I'm going to be right here. I'm not going anywhere. I'm together with you. This keeps coming up over and over again in this passage. And when we begin to unpack this passage, we see that they're sent together. And the first thing we find them doing together is being sent together to practice their faith. To like do Christianity. I know that we often communicate Christianity as a relationship. That's true. I cannot substitute you doing things of the church with the relationship with Christ. You know, one of the fears of any gospel preacher, one of the fears of any small group leader, one of the fears of any mature Christian is that somebody be in our presence and think that we are a people who believe salvation comes through association. Just being at church, just watching online, just trying to be a good gal or a good guy does not bring salvation. That's not what the scriptures teach. You, you know this, and I've tried to ground you in this, but many of you are new, and new ears require new opportunities to teach the truth. The gospel demands bankruptcy, that you come to Christ bankrupt and say, I I don't on my best day have what it means to do the righteous requirements of the law. And so I ask for your mercy and grace. I turn my life over to you. Think about that analogy I used a few moments ago of a wedding. So if you're married this morning, you've spent your lifetime giving your life away. But that began in a moment, a ceremony, where you legally gave your life away. Now, if you have just the ceremony and you don't live up to it, then the relationship is never really truly a marriage. But if you have the ceremony which marks the giving of way, followed by the evidence of your desire to live out the vows, then you've got something. It's the same with the relationship with the Lord. You can't boil it down to just that moment where you give your life to Christ and never follow through with obedience. For the obedience, while it doesn't earn your salvation, is the validity that your salvation is real. And so for many people in the church, it's important to distinguish the two. But unfortunately, with such an overemphasis on you getting saved 
and you praying to receive Christ and you coming forward for baptism and you getting right with Christ, we forget that you are we. And there's this corporate identity that gets lost in our Western mindset. And what we find in the early church is that they did this thing together. Look at verse 42. The Bible says, and they devoted themselves. I'll come back to that word in a few moments. They devoted themselves to four practices. The apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. So the first thing they devoted themselves to was the apostles' teaching. Now, this morning we don't have time to really unpack how that works, but the apostles were responsible for writing the New Testament. The prophets of old wrote the Old Testament. The apostles' writing and the prophets' writing was recognized early on by the early church as something significant of the Lord, and so the process by which it was, if you will, combined and put together is called canonization, and so it was canonized early, early, early after the resurrection. But just weeks after the resurrection, the New Testament had not all been written, and it certainly hadn't been canonized. What they had to go on is what the apostles said. What the church did wisely was preserve what the apostles said by writing it down. Some was written by the apostles themselves. Some was written by scribes who were with the apostles as they preached these messages. But the point is, there was this idea that there is an objective truth to Christianity. Christianity is filled with subjective experiences and emotions. We get that. But there is an objective, unchanging truth that's black and white. Thankfully, the apostles' words were preserved. And so the main practice they devoted themselves to was the teaching of God's word. This is interesting because you're listening to a sermon where the pastor is asking you to do exactly what you're doing. You're sitting, listening to the word of God. Did you know when you read the qualifications of a pastor, almost all the qualifications of a teaching pastor in the New Testament have to do with his character, his morality, his spiritual maturity, except one. In the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 3, verse 2, the scripture says, therefore an overseer, the word overseer, elder, and pastor used interchangeably in the New Testament. I have the privilege of being the lead overseer of church at the meal. Not a dictator, just the lead shepherd. And this is what it says. The overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. But then only one characteristic speaks to ability. It's not dynamic leadership. It's not innovative social media content. It's not to bulldoze or manipulate. He must be able to teach. Because your ability to live the Christian life is determined on your spirit nourishing on spiritual food. What is spiritual food? If I'm going to go eat somewhere, I want the cook to be able to cook. I want him to be able to cook. If I pay someone to paint my house, you know what I want him to be able to do? Paint. We pay people to do what they can do because we need those services rendered in a professional manner. God says the church's ability to understand teaching is so important. We're going to devote ourselves to it, and we're going to call out men who have the ability to teach so that people can have the truth. But then no sooner did he go to teaching, the next practice is fellowship. Now, you've been around church for a while. You've heard this word. If you haven't been around church for a while, 
That's okay. That excites us that you've come to our church. There's a word in the Greek that's often talked about because it's the word for fellowship, koinonia. The word koinonia means more than just having a meal together. Sometimes there's a misunderstanding among churches, especially churches like ours in the deep south. And fellowship's so important, we build a fellowship hall for it, and that's where we fellowship, and fellowship requires the mass sacrifice of chickens that we fry. Now, it is important to understand that eating is very important to human fellowship. It's actually mentioned in the Scripture. There's more biblical uh, theology for it than you realize, and we've all felt the vacuum in our life or void in our life that's been created because we can't share as many meals together. I don't know about you, but Christmas was odd for us this year. We drove our family home to my home state, but there were several gatherings that were canceled. I hate that. I love family gatherings. I want to talk. I'm the guy that gets it all up in people's face. What are you doing? You got a job yet? How are you doing? What are you majoring in? Well, yeah, we'll talk about that. You want my opinion on that? I'll be glad to give it to you. And so I enjoy those interactions. Some of you are so glad the family gatherings got canceled. You were like, thank you, Jesus, and COVID. We're glad we're doing this. But, but here's the deal. They, they, also, they also did more than just eat together. The word koinonia, actually, when you sort of take it apart and look at it in all the ways it's used in the Bible, the root of it is sharing. Now, I know when you think sharing, we think material. If you have a need and I have something I can share with you, that's sharing. You teach a child to share their toys. I get that. But actually, sharing is so much more than material. You ever heard somebody share a testimony? I have. It's blessed my heart. Someone share a prayer request. Someone come in and help me navigate a situation I don't know how to navigate. They share their wisdom. Sometimes I just need people to share their shoulder so I can weep on it. There are all kinds of things that we share, but here's the deal. The prerequisite of sharing is that when I step into my relationship with you or you step into your relationship with me or us, you don't come taking, you, you, you come giving. And no sooner did Luke mention that they devoted themselves to the teaching of the word and to sharing, Luke says they also devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Now, there's a little bit of interesting study on this. Most people believe because of the definite article, the, the breaking of bread, there's a good indication that it was a reference to specifically the Lord's Supper. We'll see a little bit later in the passage that they also were sharing a lot of meals together. And actually, the early church was just developing its formality and its ceremony. Remember, it was in its purest form. And so this is probably a reference to meals shared together that either began or ended with observing the Lord's Supper. Before the meal would be taken, they would have a time where the Lord's Supper, or at the end of the meal, they would have the Lord's Supper. Remember, the first Lord's Supper happened in the context of a big meal, a Passover feast that had been prepared by the disciples according to Jesus' instruction in the upper room. So separating the two has happened over many, many, many years, and there's some history behind that. Our neighbors involved in Roman Catholicism have a vastly different view of the Lord's Supper than we do, one that I certainly don't agree with. And they would teach that the Lord's Supper actually is the physical manifestation of the literal blood and the literal body of Jesus. Roman Catholic theology teaches that when the blood, uh, excuse me, when the wine enters your mouth and the bread enters your mouth, it come, becomes literally and supernaturally the blood and the flesh of Jesus. It's called transubstantiation. I do not believe that it's biblical. I respect my neighbors and friends. I don't spend any time being divisive or critical, 
But I don't believe that I must go through any ceremony to get God's grace. That's why we do not call it a sacrament. Sacraments are taught in Roman Catholicism as the means of grace. So I do these things in order to get God's grace. The Bible clearly teaches that grace comes into our life by faith. We trust and he in his mercy extends grace. Then we act out in obedience the ceremonies that he's given us to remember how the grace was made accessible. Now, a long time ago, when this was really a division in the church during times of Reformation, people who did not agree with Roman Catholic theology de-emphasized the Lord's Supper, and that has some significant downfalls as well. It's one of the reasons why we try to continue to do it consistently, and even if it means we have to offer it awkwardly in those little Jesus lunchables we hand out, We do it because it matters, and we can't wait to break bread together again and to fellowship. This is what they've devoted themselves to. And then notice finally in verse 42, we got to move fast, the prayers. Not just to prayer, the prayers. See, the first Christians were Jewish. Some people have accused Christianity of being anti-Semitic. That's just someone who doesn't understand what the Bible says. Even a surface reading of the Bible will tell you that all the first Christians were Jewish. My Savior's Jewish. (laughs) All the authors of the New Testament were Jewish, except the one we're reading today. Luke was not a Jew. He was a Gentile. He wrote two books in the New Testament, Luke and Acts. Everybody else was Jewish. Almost all my biblical heroes are Jewish. So Christianity is not anti-Semitic. We believe it is the completion of what God promised in the Old Testament messianic redemptive story. So the first Christians... They never saw a divorce between following Jesus and their obedience to the law. Even Jesus found himself in the temple often to pray. The disciples continued to go to the temple to pray. In fact, in chapter 3 of the book of Acts, one of the first things we see is Peter and John going to the temple to pray. And they come upon the beggar and they heal him through the power of Jesus. And through that, it brings a lot of conflict between Christians and Judaism. Now, we're separate from that by many, many years, many, many cultures, and at least one language. But the idea of ceremonially going to a place to pray and to worship was ingrained deeply. It's one of the reasons why I think church attendance really matters. No, no, no. This is not the effort to take a passage like this and to somehow berate or criticize those of you who are watching online. I'm thankful for the position our church has taken. I'm grateful that we've decided the person who makes the best decisions for your family's health is you. We have precious senior adults, precious shut-ins, precious people who have compromised immunities, precious folks at home today suffering from COVID who have said, Pastor, I'd be there if I could, but I can't. Thank you for providing it online. And our church is happy and glad to do that. We've actually gained people in person who weren't not coming to church. They weren't in church and began to watch online and now have visited and are here with us in person and becoming accustomed to the togetherness. There is going to come a day, though. I don't know when it is. I hope it's sooner than later. But there is going to come a day as we move through the deep, dark parts of winter and the flu season and as the vaccine becomes more accessible. There's going to come a day when I have to look at those of you who are online, who have made a decision to be online because of COVID. When that threat is gone, the convenience of your couch does not trump the Word of God. 
and we need to be together. When that threat is gone in the months to come on another day, I would say this to you who are watching online. You can worship where you are. We can worship where we are. You can watch us worship where you are. You can't worship with us where you are. This is why heaven is going to be so sweet. All of the divisions that divide people are going to be erased. and They're going to be no more. Additionally, when we forsake that gathering together, when we're not committed to these practices, we rob other people of the blessing of our life. You think I'm the only person that encourages anybody on a Sunday? Absolutely not. That would be a travesty. How many hallway conversations and concourse prayer times and just an encouraging word for a friend. Some of you leave this campus weekly and you may or may not be able to put together the main points of my sermon. But somebody walked up to you in the spirit and spoke a word over your life and that was enough for you that day. That meant something to you. That has to happen in a community that practices its faith. Secondly, though, they did not just practice their faith. They were sent together to provide for one another, those in the faith. Look what happens beginning in verse 43. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. God was moving in a miraculous way. People were passionate about it. They were excited about it. There was a genuine fear of the Lord, not fear of his wrath. But fear and awe that he is moving among us. I got one life to live. I got one ministry to fulfill. Heaven help me if I waste one Sunday in a dead church. I don't want to spend my life around people who aren't passionate about seeing God move, about seeing lives healed, and about seeing the gospel go forward. And I would just ask you, in the midst of every headline of bad news, has it affected your passion for Jesus? Because I want to know, I want you to tell, I want to tell you something. You and I have to fan that flame. We have to be in our word. We have to pray and we have to ask God that when we get discouraged to keep us focused on the task at hand. My God is as alive and well today as he's ever been. He's a healer today as he's ever been. He's in control and nothing, not what happened in Washington a few days ago. Nothing surprises my God. He looks down on countries wrestling over worldly values. He looks down on civilizations being built and civilizations being crumble or crumbling. And none of this takes him off his throne. And so the people of God have to maintain this desire, this passion to see him move. And when that happens, and man, when we see a need, we want to meet it. Look at verse 44. The Bible says it very clearly. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. There was a singular focus. Now watch what the result is of that, verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This, I need to say, is not socialism. This is not communism. This is not Marxism. All those isms came a long time after Jesus. This is truth. I want to tell you what the truth is here. These people were together because they'd been saved. And because they were saved and filled with the Spirit, they genuinely cared 
for one another. And you know what that means? That means there's always going to be people in a group that have, and there are always going to be people that have not. Je- Jesus said that, didn't he? You know what he says in the book of John? He says, the poor you'll always have with you. He told his disciples, stop focusing on them for a minute and focus on me, Jesus would say, because I'm leaving. I'm getting ready to go to the cross. There's never going to be a time when there aren't people who are poor and there aren't people who are wealthy. So any ideology that tells you that you can eliminate that is anti-scriptural. They're always going to be poor. They're always going to be wealthy. Doesn't mean we don't care. Doesn't mean we don't want people to better their lives. It doesn't mean we don't want to help people. But the scripture is very clear that poverty, like any other condition of the world, is a result of the brokenness of sin, and it's not going away until Jesus returns. So when a group of people come together in a church, some have, some have not, some struggle. And what I find for most of us in life, there are times when we have had, and there are times when we have had not. We all have the ups and downs of the unpredictable circumstances that we face. Now, this is fascinating, and it's interesting. Notice what happens in verse 46 and day by verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Who sold their possessions? People who felt led to do so. That's what the Bible teaches about giving. Paul says in 2 Corinthians these words each one must give as he has decided. This is not top down forcing people. As he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And if God leads me to give, do you know there's a people, a group of people I should care to give to above all other groups? You say, which is it? It's brothers and sisters in the faith who are suffering and struggling. This is not to neglect the lost world, but we have to care for those we call our brothers and sisters. In fact, Paul said it bluntly in the book of Galatians. He says very clearly, so then, as we have opportunity, if God's blessed you, bless somebody else, let us do good to everyone. So Paul's not saying don't share with your neighbor who's far from Christ. He's saying, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now listen, this is not to turn a blind eye to the world's needs. It's actually to live in such a way that the world sees the way we love our own and wants to be a part of the family. When we begin to think about this sharing, it's easy to kind of camp on material things. Oh, Pastor, you're right. I sponsor a child in a foreign country. That's great. I, I think you should. Pastor, you're right. Uh, last week, I bought groceries from a neighbor. That's awesome. But when you begin to study this, this passage, what you find is that that was really the outflow of sharing their whole lives together. You know what Paul says in the book of Romans about this idea? He says, so we, though many, we're all different people. There's a lot of us, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Now, in a world full of uh, abuse, uh, slavery, uh, discrimination, it can be a little bit abrupt to say, you belong to me. In fact, people push back from that. Those who would attack biblical marriage, say the teaching a woman to give her life to a husband and to submit to his leadership, well, that's chauvinistic, that's sexism. They think what they want to. But when a man gives his life to a woman and a woman gives her life to a man, it's a beautiful example of God's love to us. Did not our God succumb to our sin? Did not he kneel in submission to the wrath of our sin? And so this idea of owning while it has negative connotations, 
there's also a beautiful positive part of this. I own you and you own me. I'm a part of you and you're a part of me. Let me tell you the best illustration I could think about. If you have the privilege of being a parent, think about that first baby. There's this overwhelming experience. I know for me it was like, God, you put me in charge of another person? But then you think about who in their right mind hasn't had the opportunity to have a child biologically or through adoption that within a matter of moments wouldn't lay down your life for the child. If, if, if a baby came out with a price tag on it, every father would pass out. If you waited till you could afford them to have them, the world would solve all the problems. There wouldn't be no people. We'd be done, right? I don't know if we can swing it. You can't. People ask us about having a lot of children. After about three, you're tired and broke all the time. What's the matter? It's like hogs. Just stack them, feed the top one. Do the best you can. The, the, the reality is when you, when you begin to think about this baby, what do they basically need? Well, doctors would say babies need oxygen the moment they come out of the womb. They need to breathe. We hear that first scream. Get that airway cleared. They, 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 they need nourishment, mother's milk. And if there's a complication there, formula, they need nourishment. They need warmth, shelter, you know. And they need to be kept clean, sanitized, okay? But you know what would happen to a baby if you just gave them those four things? You know what happens? Healthline.com printed a list of what happens when a baby's not nurtured, when they're simply fed, cleaned, and kept warm. Everything begins to fall apart. Depression, anxiety, apathy, failure to thrive, hyperactivity, aggression. When children aren't nurtured, developmental delays, low self-esteem, substance misuse, withdrawing from friends, appearing uncaring, shunning emotional closeness, and many have proven clinically that the ramifications go all the way into their adult life if they're not nurtured. In fact, everybody knows that in addition to those four basic needs, you have to touch that baby, skin to skin. You have to hold that baby. You have to bond with that baby, speak to that baby, love that baby, comfort that baby. At some point when they get old enough to understand right and wrong, discipline that baby. It's called nurturing. It's just obvious. I could speak to a conference, not a church, and everybody in the room would say, you're right, pastor. Obviously, people need to be nurtured. Now, drop that into the spiritual conversation. See, when you can get your spiritual milk online, when you can just read a book, all of a sudden people think, well, that's what I need. I just need to go get my Christianity. And when they separate from the togetherness of nurturing, we'll just take this biological list and drop the word spiritual in front of it. Spiritual depression, spiritual anxiety, spiritual apathy, spiritual failure to thrive, spiritual hyperactivity. I've seen that. Spiritual aggression, spiritual developmental delays, spiritually low self-esteem, spiritual substance misuse, spiritually withdrawing, spiritual appearing, uncaring, spiritual shunning. I've seen it. 
I encounter people all the time who will tell you, I believe in Christ and I believe he died for our sins, but they are disconnected from God's people and their life is a mess spiritually. You say, well, God can meet all of our needs. I recognize that. And if God in his sovereign wisdom calls you to live by yourself on a deserted island, then yes, he will be sufficient. But that's not how he designed it. He designed us to need and share life together. And once this happens in our life, then we see finally that they were sent together to be persistent in their faith. I'm going to close with the last verse. Look what the scripture says, verse 46 and 47. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous of heart. Notice, day by day. Go back up to verse 42. Look at the third word. And they devoted. That word devoted and that word day by day meant they were persisting. One commentator said, persisting obstinately. So persisting in obstinance. You know what obstinance means? I looked it up just to make sure I understood the definition. Stubbornly refusing to change one's opinion. Somebody's like, yeah, I'm married to him. Stubbornly refusing to change one's opinion or chosen course of action despite attempts to persuade one to do so. Can I just tell you as your pastor, there are certain areas of your life you ought to be stubborn about. And one of them is this. You're going to be together with God's people. You're going to be connected with the church. Pandemic comes, you may have to connect with us virtually. We're glad you're watching this morning. But when this cloud lifts off our community, I am going to be stubborn about this. Not when we're not at the lake, we'll be here. Not when it doesn't conflict with my son's travel baseball team, I'll be around. Not when I can come and meet my needs and he's doing a series that I think applies to my life. Not I get it online and I read and I follow this guy and that guy and I listen to that one. No, no, no. I'm going to stubbornly marry my life to a group of people. And you say, Pastor, I can't marry my life to 3,000 people. You're exactly right, which is why we stand up here and scratch out a spot and pitch a fit at least four times a year to say, get in a small group, get in in an e-group, get in a prayer group, find some way to connect with people because you will not thrive in disconnected, half-hearted attempts at community. Day by day, devoted, they persisted in it. They would not be moved. And, And you know what happens when that takes place? This is so cool. What happens when that takes place is that it's not just their habits, it's their heart. Look at the last phrase of verse 46. The last phrase of verse 46 says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food. Now watch this, with glad and generous hearts. That word generous in the ESV is translated many different ways. In fact, the old King James Version, the version that many of you grew up on, it says they did eat their meat with gladness. And by the way, notice meat. Sorry, vegans. They did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Look at the New King James. The New King James says, with food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Now look at the NIV. The NIV says, together with glad and sincere heart. Singleness, simplicity, sincere. ESV says generous. Do you see what the English translators are trying to do? They're trying to capture a word that really carries more than we can pack into one English word. So let me pack it into one 
perhaps list of words, we'll call them DJisms. It means I don't just go through the habit of being in community. My heart is here and focused. I don't come with pretentiousness. I'm not worried or cynical that if I open up, you might mistreat me. I'm not distrusting or coming into my small group with an agenda. I don't need to be applauded or have to have my needs met immediately. I'm all here to give all of what I have to all the people God affords me the chance to influence. Now, if you drop a thousand people in a church like this with that attitude where your habit and your heart is right. It's a simple biblical math equation. Do you know what happens when our habits are right and our heart is right? We get the favor of God and the fruit of God. Look what it says, and I'll close. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all people, and the Lord add to their number day by day those who were being Saved. Often people think evangelistic churches are the churches that go out and share the gospel the most. Therefore, more people are saved. That has some truth to it. But the churches where people's lives are redeemed the most are the churches that love each other well in the faith. So much so, there is an aroma of contagiousness about what it means to be different. Max joined our church several years back. And this is a picture of him outside of a hospital window. See, his friend Gary, one of our deacons, has been sick for several, several, several months. He's somewhat stable, but you pray for Gary as I would ask you to pray for any person in our church that's sick. Every time he moves, his oxygen drops, and so they're just afraid to send him home. Max decided to start praying for his friend Gary, and then it dawned on him one day to drive to the hospital and pray for him. Then when he got to the hospital, he said, well, I can't go in, but maybe if I call Gary on the phone, he could tell me what he's looking at, and I'll determine which side of the window, which side of the hospital he's on, and I'm going to drive around so I can just look at his window and pray for him. And then when they figured out which was his window, Gary was able at times to get to the window and wave. And so Max would just wave and pray. And then he decided to do it every day. And so he would show up daily, snap a picture of himself in front of the window, text it to his friend and say, I'm out here praying for you. Togetherness matters. What is God teaching you about our togetherness? What's he teaching you to help our togetherness?